This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the 47 Ronin from Japan. And we'll learn that you probably don't want to insult the guy who has an army of samurai at his back. Even if you yourself have an army of samurai, just maybe be cool about stuff and don't go shoving your feet in people's faces. The creature this week might be an evil were puppy, but he's an evil were puppy with big dreams. This is Myths and Legends, episode 162, Wanderers. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. So, for a podcast called Myths and Legends, this week is one of those weird history episodes we do. This is a super famous story set in Japan during the Edo period a time ranging from 1603, when a daimyo, a noble, took control and became the shogun, a ruler who was supposed to be subject to the emperor, but really wasn't, and he effectively moved the capital from Kyoto to Edo, which is now modern-day Tokyo. It was a time of international isolation and relative stability for Japan that lasted until the mid-1800s, when Western colonialism came knocking, in the form of massive warships led by U.S. Commodore Matthew Perry, and no, not that Matthew Perry. Today's episode takes place in 1701, though, firmly in the middle of the Edo period, when feudal Japan was ruled by the shogunate and 300-plus daimyos, or lords, when they, with their samurai, controlled the whole of Japan. We'll start with one of those samurai, a powerful one, named Osh Koronosuke, riding as fast as he can for Edo. <laughs> Koronosuke pushed his squat, stocky horse as hard as he could. He had to get there. He had to get to Edo. He had been away on other business for his master when the man was called Edo to be taught the ceremonies. Though when Koronosuke returned home, the place was no longer his home. Word had traveled quickly. His master was under arrest. His estate and lands had been confiscated. His family had been turned out. His master had been allowed to keep his honor and was scheduled to commit seppuku, ritual suicide. So, Kuranosuke rode. He rode for Edo. He rode for his master. He rode, even though he feared it was already too late. Just a few days prior, two men sat in the palace of the shogun. I'm gonna kill him. Kamesuma uttered once Kira Yoshinaka left their presence. The two daimyos, the nobles, were still kneeling on the floor where Kira had left them. No one treated them like this. They were daimyos, he was beneath them. Kira had been called by the shogun, the de facto ruler of medieval Japan, to teach the provincial daimyos some manners. Now, that sounds like tough guy talk and all, but it really wasn't. An imperial ambassador was going to be passing through their area, and there were proper ceremonies that had to be observed. Ceremonies that Asano Takumi no Kame and Kamisama didn't know. So they were called to Edo, in the palace of the shogun, to learn the ceremonies from Kiryoshinaka. Now, there are a lot of names. So I'm going to start calling Asano Takumi no Kami, just Asano, and Kiryoshinaka, just Kira. Remember that Asano is one of the lords, and Kira is the teacher that they feel disrespected by. All right. Now, Kiryoshinaka was smart, ambitious, 
and a little greedy. He had climbed about as high as he was able for someone not born a noble. He was a servant of the shogun and had actually married the daughter of a daimyo. Still, he had to teach these men. These men had everything and they couldn't share. Their gifts to Kira, the man who made sure they wouldn't shame themselves in front of the emperor's ambassador, were nothing. So Kira decided that he was going to have some fun with this. He would treat them only as well as their gifts warranted. He would treat them like nothing. He would make the two powerful men debase themselves before him in the name of the ceremonies they didn't know, only to, at the end of a long day, and with a laugh, tell them that they'd get started learning the actual ceremony tomorrow. Both men raged. Asano stared at the ground, took a deep breath, and ordered his rage to dissipate. Kamisama nursed his, and his hand rested on his sword. The first word from Kira tomorrow, and the man died. Asano, though, felt the moment of rage pass, and the old man rose to his feet. He didn't say anything. He didn't need to. They couldn't attack the man here, in the palace. It was against the law. The law said that if anyone shed blood in this place, they would have to commit seppuku, ritual suicide, where someone jams a knife into their stomach and runs it back and forth, hoping that they had a friend kind enough to cut off their head before they screamed. Their lands would be forfeit. Their samurai and retainers would be without a leader. Their family would be shamed and destitute. This is the shogun's man. Let it go. This is something Asano didn't say, because it didn't need to be said. Kamisama had been angry before. He would come to his senses by the following morning. All this was temporary. But Kamisama didn't come to his senses. He continued to seethe and rage. Luckily, unlike the other daimyo, Kamisama had brought his whole household to Edo. His chief counselor, a samurai that had served Kamisama since they were both young men, knew his master and knew that this was different. He had been planning for this. That night, the jumble of coins was heard in the streets, between the palace where they were staying, and Kira, the teacher's estate. A thousand ounces of silver to Kira, and a thousand ounces to his retainers. The old samurai willed himself inside Kira's vast estate, and grimaced when he bowed before the man, imploring him to condescend to accept the gift and an apology for such a paltry gift when his master arrived. Kira's eyes sparkled, and he nodded. The samurai's master's instruction would start tomorrow. The old samurai needed a bath after such business. He knew his master would hate it. But Kamisama, the enraged pupil, would be back home before he learned of it, and the old samurai could take solace in the fact that he had just saved his household from ruin. The massive bribe, though, only made Asano's life harder. His gift sat in sharper contrast to his peers. And even though Kira heaped abuse on Asano while treating the other daimyo like the emperor himself, Asano just accepted the temporary hardship. It will be over. He will be able to go home and put all of this behind him. And then, the foot. Kira pushed his foot into Asano's face, saying that the ribbon on his sock had come untied. Would the daimyo be a good boy and tie it back up for him? Asano burned with rage, but he pinched the ribbons and tied the sock back in place. Aw, oh, that's a good but Wait, is this how you tie a sock, you clumsy idiot? <sighs> no wonder I have to teach you about the ceremonies. You're some boar from the country. You know nothing. Kira pulled his socked foot away, but Asano didn't say anything back. He didn't look up. He only stood.
Stop a moment, Asano uttered, and Kira turned with a smirk. That smirk quickly evaporated when Asano brought the blade of his short sword down hard on the teacher's forehead. The pillar, floor, and, yes, Kira's precious sock caught the spray of blood, and it was only because of the hat that Kira was wearing that he wasn't killed instantly. Whether it was his skull or the metal in the hat, the sword didn't come away easily. But when it did, Kira bolted, screaming for anyone to help him. The fact that Kira was still breathing being... uh, just annoying. Asano uttered another, Stop a moment! Before following the teacher, he found Kira in the last room, the blood now covering his face. Kira backed up against a pillar, pleading for his life. It wasn't skill. It wasn't reflexes. It was pure blind luck that, at the exact moment Kira dropped to his knees to beg for his life, Asano swung his sword at the man's neck. He buried it deep in the pillar, and before he could extract it, he felt the steel of one of the court officers on his skin. Kira scrambled behind the man, and Asano's shoulders slumped. Wish Kurenosuke arrived at the capital in just enough time to watch his master's head drop and dangle from his body. Asano had been allowed to keep his honor and commit seppuku. One of his loyal samurai, one of the few that had been in attendance on this routine trip to Edo, severed his spinal cord before he cried out. The only consolation was that the samurai had given his master a good death. In the time since Asano had attacked Kira within the precinct of the palace, Asano's life had been dismantled. His family was removed from their home and his title and lands given to another daimyo. His attendants his samurai, were unceremoniously disbanded. Kuranosuke himself became a ronin, a wandering samurai, a warrior without a master. There was shame in it, but not as much shame as knowing that he could have changed it. He would have given a suitable gift to Kira, as odious as it would have been. His master would still be alive, but his master wasn't alive. His master wasn't alive because Kira Yoshinaka had pushed him too far and dishonored him in front of his retainers, the court officials, and a fellow daimyo. Asano knew the consequences of his actions, but knew that he had to stand up for himself and his honor. Kuranosuke lowered his head. He had been a good daimyo, and a worthy master. Kuranosuke stayed in the capital, and rented a room. He was waiting, waiting for them. Even though the retainers of Asano had broken and scattered on the wind, Kuranosuke had ways to get messages to the ones that remained, to the ones that still wanted to make things right. 46, including himself, met in a secluded glen, deep in the forest. Ever since Kuranosuke watched his master's body fall, he had been planning. The retainers that remained would avenge their master, and they would kill Kira Yoshinaka. The problem? Well, Kira was waiting for it, and the days since his disrespect and cowardice had gotten their master killed... Kira's father-in-law, a powerful daimyo, had given him more samurai than Asano had ever possessed. An army patrolled his estate, and Kuranosuke himself had to sneak out of his own house. He was Asano's chief samurai and counselor, so he was being watched. If they even suspected that Kuranosuke and any of Asano's remaining samurai were even thinking of avenging their master, Kira's retainers would close ranks, and they would never get a shot at him. So, they would disappear. They were ronin, 
so they would live as ronin. No samurai would leave this glen. Only craftsmen, merchants, carpenters, they would live with a singular purpose, though. They would learn all they could about Kira, his retainers, and that compound where he lived. And when the time came, they would strike. The first snow of the year started that night, as the samurai discussed their plans. When they were finished, they said goodbye, knowing that it would be a year before they saw each other again. It was the first day of spring in Kyoto, and the man screamed, and he just kept kicking. He called Kuranosuke a coward, a drunk. He wasn't there for Asano when his master needed him, and now he didn't avenge him, giving himself up to women and wine. It was a good thing he had lost the name of Samurai. He wasn't worthy of it anymore. When it became clear that Kuranosuke, who had passed out in the street on his way home the previous night, wasn't going to wake up, the man spit in his face, kicked him a couple more times in the ribs, and continued on. When the officials splashed water in Kuranosuke's face at 9am, the old ronin struggled to his feet, vomited, and staggered home. You told me it was a trick, Kuranosuke's wife said when she saw him, his eyes bloodshot with vomit-streaked robes. He sneered. She said it had gone too far. All this, it wasn't some ruse. It was him. Since his master died, he didn't want to serve another. He didn't want to work. He only wanted to lay around and drink himself to death. The whole revenge thing being an excuse for him to do so. It was then that Kuranosuke saw the shadow. It was slight, but it was there. They were there. The tale that he had noticed two days ago. It wasn't difficult to find a samurai in the slums. Even a disgraced ronin. Kuranosuke never meant for it to be difficult. So when they finally found him, when he noticed the tale, he started drinking. Now, he could see them right outside of his wall. They were listening. He looked at his wife, the only person he had trusted with the secret, and he bit his lip. She saw a look of profound sadness flash across his face before the rage took its place. He was through with her, with her whining and complaining. If she didn't want a part of his life, she could leave it. He would buy some pretty young concubine from the public houses. He was sick of the sight of her old face anyway. She stood there in shock. What? He took a deep breath. She heard him, right? Get out. The sooner the better. His life with her had been nothing but sickness and sorrow. Go. Take the children, too. He turned and remained motionless as she begged him but he only barked at her to leave. Now, he turned so she wouldn't see his face. He had his duty to fulfill. What of Asano's retainers? Kira asked his chief counselor. The counselor was happy to give this news. All the retainers of Asano either took up jobs with other daimyo or disappeared into other trades. They came from a disgraced house. It's something they wanted to put behind them. In Kuranosuke, Kira asked. The retainers in attendance chuckled. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't be a problem. They had very good intelligence on this one. 
They were on the other side of the wall when Kurenosuke divorced his own wife, forcing her and the children out after he woke up in the street, his drunkenness helping him sleep through the beating from a peasant. Only his 16-year-old son stayed with him, and the old ronin had bought a concubine to comfort him on his slide into drunkenness, debauchery, and an early death. So, yeah, not a problem. Kira breathed for the first time in 10 months. It was finally over then. Asano's retainers and the samurai had let nearly a year pass without any attempts at vengeance over their master. Kira told his retainers to bring the spies home. No need to waste them on making sure an old man dies in the gutter. Kira didn't think it was possible, but Asano's samurai were somehow even more pathetic than their master had been. Of course, who heard this? But the workmen and the peddlers and the servants of the house. They had all been hired in the past year on the recommendation of other workmen, servants, and peddlers that had been hired. They had been watching everything. They knew the full layout of the estate and its points of weakness. They knew Kira's enemies and allies in Edo, and they knew which of his retainers would fold and surrender to attacking samurai, and which were strong and honorable and would die for their master, a request that the ronin who had followed Asano would happily oblige. The infiltration was so complete that... When Kira uttered the words about pulling the spy off of Kuranosuke, there had been one of Kuranosuke's spies right on the other side of the wall. The difference? Kira didn't know. The workman called it a day and walked through Kira's front gate. He was going to get a message to Kyoto. It was time. We'll see the Ronin plan come to fruition, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. The 47 men stood in the forest. Each had a different road that led to this place, but each had thought only about this place, sacrificing everything else since the day their master was killed. Before the night was over, they would sacrifice even more. In the past month, when he was sure that Kurnosuke wasn't coming for him, Kira dismissed half of his personal guard, sending them back to his daimyo father-in-law. He was the weakest he had been in the last year, and it was only because he thought he was the strongest. Now was the time. The snow fell heavy in the capital city of Edo as the 46 Ronin watched from the forest grove. Most people would be inside, warm and sleeping on their mats that night, while those keeping watch would do whatever they could to stay out of the cold. The ronin with eyes on the gate had been watching Kira's movements all month, while Kurenosuke made his long journey from Kyoto to Edo, doubling back multiple times to throw off any lingering spies. They knew that Kira was home that night. They were sure of it. It took a few hours for Kurenosuke to put together a plan, based on the information from a year's worth of spying on the man, but when he did, they were ready to go. In addition to the 46 servants of Asano, there was another that accompanied them in the snowy grove that night, one who hadn't been there a year ago. Oishikara, the son of Oish Kuranosuke, had stayed with his father, seeing the man's purpose in his decline. He trained in secret over the course of the past year, and even though he knew the cost, he wouldn't let his father leave without him. Nearly all the ronin, over the course of the last year, had been in Kira's home, so there was the possibility of just, you know, staying in the home until after dark and poisoning him, or just stabbing him on some random Tuesday. But it wasn't a possibility. Not for the ronin 
They knew there was a safer option, but they were going to do this right, for their honor and for their master. Still, they accepted some advantages from their access to the house, like how they had hung rope ladders off the back of the house, tucking them up and out of sight, needing only a hook to pull them free. Four would use that ladder to climb up on the roof of the entryway and jump down into the courtyard. It was quick and it was simple, and slipping past a dozen rooms filled with twice as many retainers, they padded into the guardhouse and held a sword to the throat of the sleeping guard. The Ronin had an offer, the key to the gate for the man's life. But there was a problem. The key was in the main house, and four guys couldn't storm it and start this war on their own. One Ronin found some hammers, tossed one to the two Ronin who were already on their way to the back door, and then started wailing on the door. Their pounding synced up perfectly with the drums outside. Backing up, though, we should talk about what Kuronosuke and his two dozen were doing while the four slipped into the guardhouse. Kuronosuke was knocking on doors. While his ronin infiltrated the guardhouse, Kuronosuke went around to the neighbors on each side, with two dozen armed ronin flanking him. And he was honest. He told them that they, the ronin who were formerly in the service of Asano Takumi no Kami, were going to break into the palace of Kiro Yoshinaka and avenge their daimyo. They were not robbers. They were not ruffians. No harm will be done to the neighboring houses. He was just stopping by to set their minds at ease. The neighbors, seeing two dozen armed samurai, smiled, nodded, and closed the door. You see, this is why it's important to be a good neighbor. The day might come when the nearly four dozen ronin storming your house give your neighbors advance notice. And you might want someone to call the police. But the neighbors didn't. Because of the ronin's extensive intelligence, they knew that Kira's neighbors hated him. He was loud, showy, and arrogant, and frankly, just a huge jerk. So they lined up on either side with whatever the 18th century Japanese version of popcorn was to watch the show. And that show started when the bolts on the door splintered and broke, throwing the compound open to the other 42 men waiting outside. And the drums started. No help was coming from without for Kira and his men. And Kuronosuke and his ronin wanted him to know they were coming. They wanted him to sit in the dark and watch his men cut down before him to know that his reckoning was at hand, that he had to answer for Asano Takumi no Kami. Of the 42 that swarmed the compound, 10 broke off and started climbing the walls. When Kira's first 10 samurai woke up and rushed the men in the courtyard, there was a silent, quick flashing of swords in the light of the moon and then blood covered the snow. Kira's retainers, flooding from the barracks, found themselves surrounded by men who seemed to know their house better than they did. It was instantly clear that Kira's men had been caught flat-footed, and they were dying as fast as the ronin could swing their swords. Kuranosuke's attention was on the house, on his singular objective, taking the head of Kira Yoshinaka to his master's grave. Nothing beyond that mattered. That was how he missed the messenger. The messenger wasn't a samurai, and he slipped past the samurai in the compound while they slashed and stabbed and wiped their swords. As his feet crunched the snow, he smiled. He had made it out. He would go to Kira's father-in-law, the daimyo, and bring twice the number of samurai. He had done it. He had saved his master. On the plus side, the messenger died happy, thinking that he had single-handedly turned the tide of battle. Of the ten ronin that had climbed the roof, for this exact purpose, five loosed an arrow, and four hit the messenger. There were more like him, 
but none would make it this far. There was no help coming. Inside, the Ronin had pushed through to the main house. Though they had hit a snag. Three samurai. In the reports, Kuronosuke learned that these men might be a problem. Of those they would face that day, Kuronosuke would respect these men the most. He couldn't say the same for his Ronin. The assault of 46 Ronin had been stopped cold by three men. The Ronin parted as Kuronosuke strode in, not confronting the three samurai, but his own men, asking what the year had been for. For them to stop now, they had sworn to lay down their life for their lord. He turned to his own son, Chikara, the young man who had stayed by his side when everyone abandoned him. According to one of the texts, he said, Here, boy, engage these men, and if they are too strong for you, die. Chikara nodded and gripped his spear. He wasn't a samurai, so he couldn't wear a sword of his own, but that didn't stop him. He charged. He wasn't a samurai, and though he performed admirably in his first ever fight, it was his first ever fight, the samurai noticed about six different openings, and in seconds, the young man was barely running away without having his abdomen sliced open. He backed up until he smashed through a wall and stood on the edge of a pond. It was a choice between a sword in his neck or falling backward into the water, so it wasn't really a choice. Chikara dropped back. His blood from the numerous cuts he had taken in the last 30 seconds clouded the water, and the samurai stood on the water's edge, allowing himself a chuckle that the boy thought he could even take on one of Kira's best. That's when, from the water, a spear shot out, catching him in the thigh. He screamed and dropped. As he fell, a form emerged from the water, and Chikara surfaced, burying a knife in the man's back again and again, until he stopped trying to rise. Chikara stood breathless, and the samurai's companions stood wide-eyed. What? The ronin were surprised too, but they knew an opportunity when they saw it. In seconds, the room was clear. As they flooded deeper into the house, Kurunosuke went to Chikara and, with an outstretched hand, helped him to his feet. With a nod, he took the sword from the body of Waku Hendayu, the samurai that Chikara had killed, and gave it to his son. No matter what happened today, he had earned the sword. His boy was a samurai. Lordling, as he was called, the son of Kira and the grandson of the daimyo, a daimyo himself when he came of age, was the last one to attack the samurai before the sounds of fighting were replaced with the sounds of weeping. The samurai, of course, had spared the women and children and any other non-combatants in Kira's household. They killed everyone else to a man. Now, though, they had a problem. The last man they were here to kill, the only one, really, was gone. Kira wasn't Hira. Kuronosuke divided up the men in four groups to search the house and checked in with the archers on the roof. No one had gotten away. And of everyone they had stopped, only the little lordling lived. He was crying with an arrow through his calf not far off. He had been stopped on his way to Grandpa's house for reinforcements. That's when Kuronosuke heard a call from Kira's bedchamber. When he arrived, he learned that Kira's bedding was warm. He had been there and... Over the last year, no one had learned of any secret passageways away from the house. 
That's when someone moved a painting. Huh. Think he went this way? The Ronin were all looking through a hole torn in the plaster wall. Yep. Yep, he just might have. The Ronin climbed through the hole and found a simple courtyard with an outhouse. They surrounded it and one, named Juitaro, opened the door. The men that sprung from it died quickly, but they died well. When they thudded to the ground, the Ronin heard a whimpering from inside the outhouse. Not taking any chances, they flung the door open and stabbed first. No weapons clashed with their own. They only heard a scream. They dragged the old teacher out by his sleeping robe, the one with the growing red spot where he had been stabbed. Kuronosuke stood over him, lantern in hand, and demanded his name. The man averted his eyes and remained silent. One of the ronin pressed a sword point to his neck, demanding an answer, but Kuronosuke held up a hand. That wouldn't be necessary. He brushed the man's hair to the side and revealed a scar. The scar that Asano had given him that day in the palace from the fight that had started it all. It was Kira Yoshinaka. The ronin sheathed their swords, all but one. Kuronosuke stood over the man like the personification of duty, of a movable, immutable fate. He said that they were the retainers, the samurai of Asano Takumi no Kami. Last year, Kira and their master quarreled in the palace, and their master was sentenced to commit seppuku, and his family ruined. They were faithful and loyal men, and they have come to avenge him. He hoped Kira would acknowledge the justice of their purpose. They were going to give him the chance to die with honor before they presented his head to their master. He gave Kira the knife and unsheathed his own katana, saying that he would serve as Kira's second and cut off his head as soon as he committed the act. It was an honorable death, a good death. Kira looked down and recognized the sword. It was the same sword he had watched Asano take his own life with. Kira had been smiling from the crowd that day, and it was the same sword that Asano had used to give him the scar on his forehead. He picked up that sword, but his hand shook, and he dropped it. He collapsed in a pile of tears. In the end, Kira Yoshinaka did not die an honorable death. Kuronosuke entreated him, again and again, to commit seppuku, but when the time came, the other ronin simply held him down and cut off his head. Their work done, they put out the lanterns, lights, and fires in Kira's home. They didn't want to burn down half the city by accident, and they left. It was sunrise, 7 a.m. in the morning, when they arrived at the temple, and the sun had risen, when Kuronosuke fulfilled his last act as the retainer of Asano Takumi no Kami, and placed Kira's head before his master's tomb. They had done it. It was finished. There are consequences to every action, and Kronosuke knew this. He spoke with the priest, handing him a bag containing the last bit of money from everyone. Then, every last ronin burned incense and read prayers for their master. When they were finished, they went to the front of the temple and sat. Men came with hands and their swords, but the ronin didn't move to draw their own. They didn't resist. In honoring their master, they had broken the law. On this day, both debts would be paid. They submitted to the shogun's men and made their way to the palace. Days later, no one flinched as the final order was read. 
it was decreed that the Ronin disrespected the government and the dignity of the city when they banded together to break into the house of one of its citizens and murder him. For this act, they would all be forced to commit seppuku. They all knew the cost of honoring their master from the moment they had gathered together in that snowy clearing one year ago. They knew death was a certainty, but they wouldn't live with the alternative. They had made up their minds from the beginning that the end must come, and they would face it nobly. Ush Kurnoshke died with his men, with his son, on a calm, snowy morning. done, the remains of the ronin were entombed in the only place where it really made sense, with their master. To this day, near the grave of Asano Takumi no Kami, there stands arrayed the graves of 48 men. And yeah, 48 men. Many came to pray at the graves of the 47 ronin, their story already beginning to pass into legend. But there was one who came to pray and weep. When Oish Kornosuke lay passed out drunk in the gutter, to throw Kira's spies off the trail. There was a man who spat on him, who cursed his name because he hadn't been there for Asano. Now, he lay prostrate at Kuronosuke's grave, begging him for his forgiveness. In the trial, it had all come out. The ruse they had played for a year while they plotted and planned, getting close to Kira. Kuronosuke had sacrificed the most, going so far as to divorce his wife and cast out his two children so Kira's men wouldn't suspect anything. The man apologized for disrespecting Kuronosuke, and then he collapsed. When the priests found him, they also found the dagger buried in his stomach. He hadn't been one of the ronin, but he had died like one. Also, they had no idea who this guy was, so they cremated him and put his grave next to the ones he had revered so much. People still go to the graves of Asano Takumi no Kami and the 47 ronin, the story initially became popularized in the plays during the Edo period, and it was during this time that the stories got a bit muddled. There was apparently a law against dramatizing recent history, so the late fictionalizations helped the story pass in a legend faster than normal. But it's absolutely a true story. Like I said, you can go visit the graves at a temple in Tokyo, and there's a festival on December 14th, where the people go to burn incense for the ronin, to commemorate the anniversary of their revenge. Next week... It's not history, not remotely. We're telling two famous Grimm Brothers stories. First is the story of Hansel and Gretel, and second is the robber bridegroom. Both of these, which were originally children's stories, involve way too much cannibalism, blood, and death. So, enjoy. The creature this week is Prikulisi, from Romania. You can say a lot of things about the Prikulisi, but I think it deserves the most credit for trying to break down some barriers. The Prikalisi looked at the centuries-long conflict between vampires and werewolves and thought, yeah, let's put an end to this. Unfortunately, try as he might, the Prikalisi was a near miss when it came to uniting these two groups. Because while the Prikalisi is absolutely a vampire, it's only a were-dog, not a werewolf. Yeah, embarrassing. And I gotta say, the Prikalisi absolutely doesn't deserve the form of a dog, because the Prikalisi is just a violent and evil man who took one look at the grave and was like, nah, I think I'll keep being violent and evil. So the devil was like, yeah, okay, 
I'm the devil, so that's something I can get behind, and gave him that power. Mostly. In addition to hunting down and exsanguinating humans, the Precolisi has some major wolf envy. While in dog form, it reportedly goes out into the forests and mingles in the company of wolves. And the devil laughs, because even though he got an evil man to essentially live forever being evil, he still gave the Precolisi a profound inferiority complex in the process. This actually ends up working against the devil, though, because the Precolisi, despite having one job, will drift away from being a humanoid vampire in the city and start spending more and more time with his wolf pack until he's finally allowed to join them and roam the countryside. But don't be thinking that he's turned over a new leaf and he's some good boy now because people in rural Romania have reported attacks from the giant dog. In fact, since so much modern vampire lore comes from these Eastern European regions, I found sources that describe the vampire's ability to turn into a wolf or big black dog as stemming directly from the Precolisi. Like any folklore wolf, or dog that can't quite close that gap, the Precolisi reportedly attacks traveling humans and livestock. Your defense? Well, how about every movie where someone is breaking in somewhere and tosses the guard dog a steak? Bring the vampiric were-dog some food, and you're good. Just don't call him a good boy and try to like scratch his belly or something. I cannot imagine that ending well for you. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. If you've been thinking about your home security, there is no better time to get it than right now. Starting this week, Simply Safe Home Security is giving our listeners exclusive deals for Black Friday. Simply Safe almost never has a deal like this, so check it out. This is already the best value in home security. And right now, you'll get all the savings from this massive Black Friday sale. Just visit simplysafe.com slash legends. This offer ends Cyber Monday. That's Monday, December 2nd. So go before then. Simplysafe.com slash legends. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 